We're continuing our study in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. If you need a catechism, there should be some on the back table. I think we've still got a supply back there. And uh, we're on question 26 today. And this is continuing our study on the work of Christ the Redeemer. And you remember I've told you that Christ was given offices to fill that when someone is given work to do by one in authority over them, the Father, in this case, gave the Son work to do, they also provide for that one what they need to do the work. So for him, he provided a body for him that he might come in our flesh, and he provided uh, these offices of a prophet, priest, and king in order that he might carry out what only he could do as the one who is the Son of God and also came in human flesh. We looked at the introductory question to this a few weeks ago, which is question 23. So let's review a few of these questions to bring us up to where we are now. Question 23, let's confess together. uh, What offices doth Christ execute as our Redeemer? Christ is our Redeemer, executeth the offices of a prophet, of a priest, and of a king, both in his estate of humiliation and exaltation. So is this question shows us Christ has three offices that he was given to fulfill. So far we've looked at the first two, the prophet and the priest. Now let's confess the questions that pertain to those two that we've already done then. Question 24, how doth Christ execute the office of a prophet? Christ executeth the office of a prophet in revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. And in question 25, how doth Christ execute the office of a priest? Christ executeth the office of a priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God and in making continual intercession for us. Then today, question 26, with the office of king, let's confess that one as well, how doth Christ execute the office of king? Christ executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. So, in brief, with these questions, you see that as our prophet, Christ reveals God's will. Not only have we seen, does he declare the gospel and the commandments of God, but he himself is actually the living display of the law of God, the commandments of God, and the gospel of God's grace. He lives these out before us. And not only that, but he also, being God, is able to do something that no one else would be able to do to bring that truth to us so that we believe and so that we obey. So his prophetic ministry has an ongoing aspect as he brings the word of God to us in that living way. The word has all been revealed now as far as the gospel and the commandments of God. And then he takes those and he brings them to us so that we receive them as our prophet. Then as our king, Christ offers sacrifices and prays for us, which is what a priest does. Did I just say king? I think I said king. Uh, As our priest, uh, Christ offers sacrifices and prays for us. Not only does he offer the sacrifice, but he himself became the sacrifice that takes away our sin. And then having done that, he has the ongoing ministry of intercession where he prays for us so that his sacrifice is continually applied to us for the forgiveness of our sins. And this week, as our king, we will see that Christ rules over us and that he defeats all of our enemies. Not only does he rule us in an outward way, but when he rules in us, he works in us so that God's law is actually written in our hearts and so that we're able to obey him. And in dealing with our enemies, 
He, he entirely defeats them at the last. Even enemies like Satan, we talked about that, the difference with Christ. Like you, you can't picture, you know, oh, uh, King David, would you go and conquer Satan and crush his head for us? Like King David can't do that. Son of God is the only one that can do that. He's the one that uh, had to fulfill that. And uh, he entirely defeats them, even Satan and death itself. You couldn't never ask an earthly king to defeat death for us, could you? This is what we will look at today as his office of king. As we consider him as king, I've chosen Ezekiel 34 for our scripture reading because in this passage, God presents the pitiful way that Israel's kings had served them as their shepherds. And then God promises to raise up the son of David. David, of course, was a model king in Israel who really did care for the people. So the son of David is, of course, another name for Jesus as king. So when we read about the shepherd king here in Ezekiel, in this passage, God promises to give us Jesus, the son of David, to be a shepherd who will truly care for us as God's people and who will truly bring us peace. So please listen as I read to you from the Holy Word of God, Ezekiel 34, and I will begin in the first verse. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed these who are sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost. But with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth. And no one was seeking or searching for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds seek for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths, and that they may no longer be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out, as a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep." So will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and their fold shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost, and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken, and strengthen what was sick. And I will destroy the fat and the strong, and feed them in judgment. I'm just going to pause here to make a comment. This is a, a long reading. I hope as you are listening to this as a congregation. You're thinking about all of these things we're reading here, God does for us. He gives a shepherd to do all these things. And how wonderful those things are. These are tremendous things that are set forth to us here. Let's continue the word of God. Verse 17. And as for you, O my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I shall judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and goats, 
Is it too little for you to have eaten up the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the residue of your, of your pasture and to have drunk of the clear waters that you must foul the residue with your feet? And as for my flock, they eat what you have trampled with your feet and they drink what you have fouled with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, behold, I myself will judge between the fat and the lean sheep because you have pushed with side and shoulder, butted all the weak ones with your horns and scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will save my flock and they shall no longer be a prey and I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will establish one shepherd over them and he shall feed them, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd and I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will make a covenant of peace with them and cause wild beasts to cease from the land and they will dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing and I will cause showers to come down in their season and there shall be showers of blessing. Then the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield her increase. They shall be safe in their land, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I have broken the bands of their yoke and delivered them from the hand of those who enslaved them. And they shall no longer be a prey for the nations, nor shall beasts of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and no one shall make them afraid. I will raise up for them a garden of renown, And they shall no longer be consumed with hunger in the land, nor bear the shame of the Gentiles anymore. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men, and I am your God, says the Lord your God. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. This passage is very straightforward, isn't it? The Lord is very grieved with Israel's kings because they have used their offices to abuse the sheep instead of to protect them and care for them. As a result, the sheep, God's people, God's true people, remember the sheep are the ones that hear his voice and follow him. They are under the dominion of ungodly nations because their ungodly kings have led them in a wicked way. They're not fed, seeing that they're fed the word of God, neither his promises nor his commandments, and they are starving as a result. They're neither corrected nor healed. They're straying and they're sickly. But you see here that the Lord promises that he will raise up the son of David for them. This is the promise that he will raise up Jesus Christ to be their king. He will be a king that will rule them and feed them and who will protect them forever and ever. How we need to know that in these days when we feel our weakness. We talked about today how hard times, that God brings such times upon us. What do we need? We need a shepherd who is none other than the son of God who can carry us through. You see here that the Lord promises that he will himself will raise up such a shepherd. This is his promise. So as we consider Christ as king, I want to begin by looking at what God wants in a king for his people, then at how Christ is that which God wants and much more, and finally at how you should respond to and rest in Christ as king. So first thing, what does God the Father want in a king? He wants a king who has a heart for him. When God brought his people out of Egypt, he revealed to them that he himself was their king. They did not have kings like the other nations for quite a few years because God himself was their king and they were to submit to him. And he made that clear to them that he was their king. For this reason, when God's people demanded a king, The Lord rebuked them through Samuel, saying, you have rejected me as your king. They demanded a king because they were terribly disordered and they were unable to raise up a unified army in their society. And they blamed all that on not having a king as if they didn't have a king. 
The real reason they were disordered was not for lack of a king, but because they had been disobedient to their king, God their king, and he was chastening them and sending disorder to them as a correction, a means of correction. He did, he did concede to let them have a king when they asked for one, but he insisted that the king was to be different than the kings of the nations. He was to be a representative of God, God's minister who did God's will. Now, a king, regardless of whether he wants to be or not, is a minister of God. But the kings of Israel were to be consciously, actively, obediently a minister of God. Unlike the kings of the nations who make up their own laws, Israel's king was to enforce the law of God. Unlike the kings of the nations who fought against other nations to expand their territory and uh, for whatever reasons they had of their own, the kings of Israel were to fight the Lord's battles in the Lord's name. So Romans 13 is where we have the instruction that all kings and rulers are actually God's ministers, whether they acknowledge God or not. He is the one who gives them their authority, and they're supposed to rule for him. Now Saul was a failure in this regard because he acted like the kings of the nations, doing his own will. But then the Lord chose David to be their king, because as it says of David in Acts 13, the Lord said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. David was there as far as his own purpose and what he wanted to do. He was there to do what God wanted, what pleased God. That was how David acted as a king. He was not there to do his own will or to seek his own glory but he was there to do the will of God. He was there for God's honor. But many of the kings who came after David were not men after God's own heart. In fact, God compared them to his servant David. In Ezekiel 34, two through three, the wrong kind of king is described as one who feeds himself. That's the difference, isn't it? He makes decisions according to how it will best serve his own interest rather than looking what will be best for the people. That's a terrible trait in a leader. A leader says, oh, I've got authority. I can do what's good for me. That's not what a leader is supposed to do. Of course, to a certain extent, it is in his interest for the kingdom that he rules over to prosper. So it's not as if he was uh, trying, uh, trying to destroy the people, like you know, a king like Saul, because like I mentioned earlier today, that uh, the king is fed from the fields of his subjects. But his selfishness frequently gets in the way because he's not truly for the people, but at the bottom of it all, he's for himself. So kings can often look okay because they kind of have to keep things going and they kind of don't want everybody to turn against them because it won't go well for them. But if at the bottom of it, there's that selfishness, then they turn out like Saul. But also, even if he was truly for the people, this would still not be all that God wants. A king who truly does what God wants sometimes has to do things that are not popular with the people. So being for the people doesn't mean just doing whatever they want. The modern notion that the ideal king is a king who does whatever the people want is wrong. The kind of king that God wants is one that does what God wants, not a king who just says that he does but one who truly does the will of God and one who leads his people in justice and righteousness. If Jesus had done what his followers wanted, then he would have used his power to heal everybody in the world probably and to multiply bread and to control the weather in order to make his subjects immeasurably rich and prosperous. They, they would have, boy, they would have done a lot with him, wouldn't they? In a, in a, in a worldly way. And he would have never gone to the cross. His own subjects didn't want him to do that at all. If he had brought forward the motion that uh, he was going to go to the cross and ask them to vote about it, they would have all <laughs> said nay to that. And uh, so we're glad that he didn't do what the people wanted. He was there for the people, but for God. You see the distinction. 
Sometimes fathers have to do that in leading their families. They can't always do what everybody wants. Sometimes they have to make decisions that, that will cut across the grain because it's something pleasing to God. If you're in leadership in your home or your household, you know the tensions that rise in your sinful heart when you know what would be pleasing to God, but you're kind of thinking, I'll get a lot of flack for that, and you, you start to, to waver. You have to fight against your own selfishness that causes you to want to use your authority for your own selfish interests. And you have to fight against just pleasing those who are under your authority. Both of those you have to fight against. You know, I'm in charge, so this is going to work better for me. It's not the way it works. When kings do not rule as God's servants, the people under them suffer, as Ezekiel 34 shows. Verse 3 shows that the selfish king takes what is meant for the sheep. Speaks of people who are deprived from receiving the word of God, doesn't it? The king is not following the word, so he doesn't want them to know what the word says. Because <laughs> it's in conflict with what he's doing. I'm not going to open up the word with my kids because it's going to say bad stuff about me and I don't want to change. So I'm not going to do that. He either fills them with other things to distract them or he uses force to keep them from truth. Punishing true prophets and forbidding them to speak. We have known of men who in the same wicked spirit forbade their children to go to a solid church or who simply led them to a weak church because they didn't want the truth in their home. They didn't want the word of God in their home. That's great wickedness. Verse four shows that he neglects the care of the sheep. There's no effort to care for the sick or the lost and to restore them to the Lord. There's only a desire to control them for his own selfish purpose. For example, instead of healing from the gospel, the king either wants to keep them in fear and despair so he can control them better, or he wants to give them false promises and comfort without God's salvation in order to flatter them. Like we saw today, the king that pretends like that he's got resources in himself when the only resources he has is what he gets from the people. He doesn't have wealth. A king, his wealth is the wealth of all the people. And he can't pretend like he can give out whatever he wants to everyone and make promises in that way. So when kings do not rule as God's servant, the people under them suffer. Verse four shows that he also neglects the care of the sheep. There's no effort to care for the sick or the lost and restore them to the Lord, only a desire to control. Verse five shows that the sheep become a prey to wild beasts. They're not protected from false teachers and from robbers. The ungodly king invites perverts and robbers in and honors them, feeding his people to them. He lets corruption spread without correcting it. Of course, in the case of a father, he lets corrupt media, for example, into his home and begin to permeate and spread into his home. Or he forces, he, he focuses on entertainment and neglects the things of the Lord so that his children are brought into bondage to things like, um, like, like sports or, or things like recreation and uh, drink and, and pornography and, and different things like that because he's not feeding them with the things of God. He's, he's giving them these other things to occupy them and, and just to push them aside because it's too hard to do the other stuff. Verse 6 shows that they're not given guidance, and so they go astray. There's godly, no godly discipline to correct them. They wander away from God's will as a society, and the king does nothing to restrain or rescue. This is a spirit found in elders all too common today that don't exercise church discipline. It's too hard. We don't want to go there. Or parents who never restrain their children with a rod to correct them when they need it. Or governors who who don't punish criminals in justice. In verse 7 through 10, God says that he is against such shepherds and that he will hold them accountable for their wickedness. And he will. They will not escape. But he also shows in verses 11 through 31 that he will provide for his sheep and that he will do it as verse 23 and 24 say, by raising up his servant David. They've got the wrong kind of king. God's going to raise up the right kind of king. David, of course, was already dead and buried when this was written. And this is not talking about the reincarnation of David. 
This is talking about the son of David, his servant David, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom God was going to send to be a king, and whom God did send, of course, now as we read this 2,000 years ago, that God sent him. Jesus is the king then that God wants, and perfectly so. He is the ideal king that God sent. Now let me show you how he is that ideal king. First, Jesus is the king that God wants because he truly has a heart for God. As he himself testified, he said, my food and my drink is to do the will of the one that sent me. John 4, 34. According to Hebrews 10, 7, when he came into the world, he said, I have come to do your will, O God. We have already seen that as a prophet, he is the living expression of the commandments of God lived out. And he's the living expression of God's grace demonstrated to his people. The very embodiment of God's law and God's salvation. God's commandments lived out, his grace lived out before our very eyes in him. Jesus was totally there for his subjects, his people who are very dear to him. We have seen to what lengths that he went is our priest. The beautiful thing that he did for his subjects. This is described in Philippians 2, 4 through 7. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Talk about a king who is not in it for himself. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did this because it was the Father's will. He did this because of his love for his subjects. That was what God wanted him to have. And he did it for the good of all. He did it for the glory of God and the, and the promotion of God's name. Second, Jesus is the kind of, of or Jesus is the king that God wants because Jesus makes his people subject to God. First, by obeying God is the one who represents them, who stands in their place. And that's what we've just seen, that he himself was all out for God's will and he did God's will so that his whole kingdom is defined by him as king. God looks at the king to see the conduct of the kingdom. And in the case of Christ, that conduct is beautiful and perfect and pleasing to God so that the whole kingdom is received. We are seen all together in Christ as beautifully subjected to God because our king who represents us is beautifully subjected to God, a king who loves to do the will of God. But that's not all. He also calls us to repentance, gathering us back to God as Israel's faithful kings did. He calls us back to obedience and back to trust in God's promises because we wander away from both. If you're serving God today, it's because Jesus called you to come to the Father and because he brought you to the Father and because he made you a willing volunteer to God, as it says in Psalm 110.3, he makes us willing volunteers in the day of his power and then because he continues to come to you and to keep you and to turn you back. That's the work that he does. Ordinary kings can uphold God's ways in their kingdom, but Jesus is the one that can actually turn the hearts of his sheep to God. He reconciles us to the Father, not only by atoning for our sins as our priest, but also by making us servants to God under his power and grace. And then once he has gathered us and reconciled us to God, he then does what God wants to preserve us. He keeps us to the end. He feeds us. He gives us rest. He disciplines us. His keeping of us is described in John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. His feeding of us is described in John 6, 35. 
And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, but he who believes in me shall never thirst. His giving us rest is described in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. His correction is in Hebrews twelve six. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. All of that is to keep us in the way of God. We would not continue in the way of God if we didn't have Jesus as our king. So you see how he brings us into willing service to God and then by his power, he keeps us in that service so that we don't go away from God. And we're told that when he is finished with us, we will be completely without sin, completely full of all of the beautiful ways of our God. Revelation 21, 27 says that of the final state of his kingdom, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We talked about, we sang earlier in, uh, in Psalm 52, a Doeg's tongue being ripped out because it was a lying tongue that brought murder and death. God will rip out lying tongues and send to hell those who are opposed to the truth. And he will bring his people who sometimes stumble and struggle with the truth, but who have embraced the call of God and the truth of God in Christ. He will bring them to perfection in that truth. According to Romans eight twenty nine, God has actually predestined those that he has chosen to be like Christ, for whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Can you imagine what it would be like to have a heart like the heart of Jesus that's so marvelously committed to serving others that you would actually go and die on the cross for them? And a heart that's so totally full of the love of God and a heart that knows him and delights in him and that's constantly rejoicing in him? That's our destiny if Jesus is our king. That's what he brings us to. Brothers and sisters, we are broken now, but we will be fixed. We will be completely, not partially, completely fixed. We will not limp along halfway. We're going to be completely healed by powerful King Jesus. If there is saving to be done, and surely there is, it will be done by him. But that's not all that is true of him as our king. Not only does uh, he, he totally have a heart for God and does he totally at last give us a heart for God? But third, Jesus is the king that God wants because he conquers God's enemies. It is the task of a king to lead his people in battle against their enemies. First, he rescues you out of the hands of your enemies and then he keeps you in safety, leading you in battle to keep you safe so that you overcome Understand that the enemies of God's people are any who hinder us from faithful service and devotion to God. What does an enemy do? They keep you from doing what you desire to do, or we could say what you ought to do. They, they hinder you in some way. They oppose you. They stand in your way. And if we've been brought to God with a heart for God to do the will of God, we're desiring to serve him. Our enemies are trying to block us from doing what we've been given to do. So the king then leads us So with our enemies. He, he delivers us from our enemies. Satan is the arch enemy who stole Adam and Eve away from God's service in the garden. And Jesus is the one God promised right after the fall, the one that would come and crush the serpent's head to take a people back for God. King Jesus is the one who, according to 1 John 3, 8, was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil so that we could not be kept from serving God. So, well, you know, oh, Jesus is destroying the devil. The reason he's doing it is so that we can serve God because Satan hinders and stands in our way. We're told that Jesus has already cast him out of heaven and that the last day he will cast him and all men and angels who are joined with him in his rebellion into the lake of fire forever and ever. Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You need to understand that there are no neutral people. In Adam, we all fell. 
we fell into rebellion and we were joined and united with Satan. And the only way that uh, the only way out of it is not to stay where you are, but to repent and to come to Jesus. If you just do nothing, you say, oh, I'm not against God. You are against God. That's where we're set. You have to be delivered. To enter his kingdom, to be delivered out of the kingdom of Satan and brought to Jesus, your master, you have to be brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Revelation 20 verse 15 says, anyone not found written in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. The sinful and the rebellious then will be totally terminated, expelled, cast out forever. What other, kings can, what other king can utterly wipe out his enemies? Enemies like that. No other king can do that. But there are other enemies as well that keep us from service to God. There is death. There is the curse. As the Psalms say, the dead cannot praise God. That's true. If you're in the grave... You don't have a tongue active to sing. You don't have, um, you're, you aren't able to come before God. But we're told plainly in 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 26 that he is such a great king that he will conquer death for his people. He must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What other king is able to do that for his subjects? Do you want to go and approach some king in the world and ask him, some ruler, some guy that's full of pride and hubris, you want to ask him to deliver you from death? And along with death, the curse will be wiped out so that we can serve the Lord without anything holding us back. Revelation 22, 3, And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. See the connection? No curse, his servants shall serve him. The purpose of removing it is that we can serve God. That's the reason that God brought Israel out of Egypt. They were in bondage to another king that didn't do the will of God. So he brought them out that they might be in subjection to him instead. This is why he delivers you from Satan and the world and the flesh and the death and death and the curse, all that you may serve God. Jesus is able to do great and mighty exploits because he is the son of God. That makes him unique as our king. That is why as king, Let's review a little bit. He has a heart for God to do what God wants. That's why as king, he has the power to turn us to obedient ways. That's why as king, he has the power to destroy all of our enemies. I tell you, there is no king like King Jesus who can do these things. That's why he is called the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. There's no one that you can compare with him. Now, how should you respond to Christ the King? How should you respond to such a king? First, rejoice that he is all that God wants him to be as a king, and that what God wants is a king that so wonderfully cares for his subjects. What if God wanted a king that did something else, that uh, made sport with his subjects, that, that somehow um, put them into experiments to to see what would happen to their brains if you did certain things to them. and you know, Some kings have done things like that. that. That wouldn't be a good kind of king. This, this is a king who wants the one who rules them to love his people and to provide for them and to do these things that we've, we've been talking about. And then we look at Christ and, and, and we're to adore him when we see that he beautifully does the will of God, that he is full of that, those beautiful things like like love and service and, and true and pure worship. So it's for us to look upon Christ and to take joy and delight in Him. Even as you read your Bibles and you see what, what God calls for in a king and you look at Christ, like when you read about all the kings that did all these things and you compare it with David. Remember David, that, that's Christ. Like you look, Christ is the model now. And we, so we're always... We're always looking at him and, and seeing his beauty and, and, and what it's like to have that, 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 that attitude where he's serving God wholeheartedly. So that's the first thing. You, you rejoice in such a king. And then secondly, cheerfully submit to King Jesus as your king. He'll never lead you in ways that are harmful 
or that are defiled or that are even unattractive. They may not be attractive to the world because they're blind. But when everything is brought to light, it won't be unattractive at all. As we've seen, he reigns over his people to bring them into conformity to his own glorious likeness. He rules us to infuse us with that same love that is in him. So wouldn't you submit to one that's going to to make you utterly beautiful? A person that is just a delightful, beautiful person, your personality, but all that God has called you. Wouldn't that be one that you would come to and say, I'm yours, like do with me what what you please? Maybe, Maybe you're... Maybe you're struggling in these, with weariness in these COVID days. Well, what do you do with that? Do you, the world turns to drugs and booze and anger, suicide. But for us believers, it's time for us to grow. It's time for us to turn to our Lord. King Jesus has sent these trials so that we can learn to serve him and love him and love each other when it's hard. When people are sort of wearing on you and, you you know, you're just kind of stressed out and things are not going all that great. That's the time when you can grow because his grace will enable you to go on and and love those people. Go on and serve those people instead of giving in to your selfishness. Every time you do that, you grow. We have seen that he has power to actually turn our lives around. Seek him for this. Come to his word, spend time in prayer, discipline yourself for godliness because this powerful king is able to make us what we are not by his divine power. He can transform us to be holy as God is holy. Like I said before, another king can even think about doing that. He can give you rules, but he can't transform you from the core and he's committed to doing that. No other king would even desire to do do that. He can't even think of it. And look to him also for deliverance from your enemies that we've spoken about, all all who try to keep you from serving God. Your king's never going to lose, even if it's his will for you to suffer many trials for a while, even to die for him or to bear sorrows for him in this world. Sometimes we're called to bear sorrows for a long, long time. This powerful king will overcome those enemies in your life and you will be brighter and stronger than you ever were before and fit better for eternity to live with him. He's working in you through the difficulties and through the trials of life. Don't be like the doomsdayers message. Don't let that get to your heart. You know, look look for the city whose builder and maker is God. There's, There's potential here. There's there's promises here. There's a covenant here. No matter what trials come, his promise is that we who trust him will laugh when it's all finished and we will see how wonderfully it all turns out in his hands. Can't even begin to fathom all that will come together. Third, promote King Jesus to others. Encourage those who already know him to see the kind of king that he truly is. You know, people can get discouraged and down in this world and lose sight. Christians can lose sight. Encourage them that he's able to protect them, that he's able to transform them, and and then point them back to him when they lose sight. Urge them to repent and return, looking to him as the author and finisher of our faith. And when they're talking in fearful ways, remind them, he's strong. He will destroy our enemies, Satan, death, the curse. We're not powerless. Well, maybe we are, but not with him. No enemy can stand before him. How wonderful it is to remind your spouse about him, to share his majesty and beauty with your children, to teach them to draw on his power and grace and to imitate his example, to rest in his protection and promises. What happens so often when we get into a quarrel in our homes somehow? then all we're thinking about is we want that other person to change. We want them to, you know, do this or do that. But when we turn around and look at it this way, we see our powerful king and we want him to change us. And we want to help them change by his help. 
not just our irritation reacting to them and forcing them to a different behavior because they're afraid of us or uncomfortable or whatever, but because we're drawing to God. This is the goal that we have here. It's a new way of living. For those of you who know, for those you may know who have not come to him for his saving work, plead with him that they might see the gracious and the gracious kind of king that he is, that they might turn from their self-centered master to this gracious master who gave his life for his people, who cares for them and protects them. Show them how foolish it is and how serious the consequences are if they continue to reject him. Warn them that they will be brought under his fiery indignation if they reject so great a salvation. And finally, the fourth thing, imitate Jesus in your own leadership. We saw, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. God did not make you a husband or a parent or an elder or what kind of leader you might be so that you could take advantage of others and be selfish. No, he did it so that you could serve them the way Jesus serves his people. Do what is best for them as he does for you. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit but in lowliness of mind, regard others better as better than yourself. Some people think that that means like, okay, so I'm a math professor and I've got these little kids that I'm teaching math to that I have to pretend like they're better at math than me because it's, it's kind of not true. Like I know a lot more math from a math professor than they do. So what does it mean to count them better than myself? That's how some people try to work that out. What it means is, is that you look at these little lives that you're talking about is more important than your life. And the things that they need, the concerns that they have is more important than your own concerns. That's what it means to regard them more highly than yourself. Not to think that they're more skilled or that they're better or whatever. It may not be true. That's the kind of shepherd that God wants. Not a selfish shepherd like the ones that he condemns in Ezekiel 34. Keep the focus on leading those under your care in God's paths of righteousness. It's his will that you want to lead them to do good's, God's will and not your own will. That's why God has given you authority to lead them that way. Imitate Jesus then. So what a marvelous thing it is to have a redeemer like Jesus looking at the whole thing, our prophet, our priest, and our king. So we've seen this section here. Trust him as your prophet to reveal God's saving truth to your soul. Trust him as your priest to bring you complete forgiveness of sin as his own, by his own offering. Trust him as your king to bring you into obedience to God and to deliver you from all that would hinder you from God's service. Jesus Christ is the only redeemer of God's elect. No one else can begin to even think about doing what he does for his people. There is so much saving that needs to be done. And he is the one that must do all of the saving. Please stand and let's call on his name. Our Lord Jesus Christ, how we praise you that you have come to this world as our prophet, priest, and king. And that because you have access to the Father, that we have access to the Father through you. And how we pray, O Lord, that you would receive us as your people in the name of Jesus, our prophet, our priest, and our king. We pray, Lord, that by him we would be connected to your truth. By him as our prophet. And that by him as our priest that we would be connected to him as our righteous redeemer who represents us and intercedes for us, that we have in him forgiveness of sins. And that as our king, that we would be connected to him as the obedient one, that his obedience would be ours, Lord, and that you would so work in us through King Jesus that we would do the will of God and we would become beautifully subjected to do your will. 
Father, as we look out today, the church in North America, we see, Lord, that so often that there is a neglect of of the very one who is able to save us. We do not look at Christ as the one that we need, that we cannot be saved apart from him. And we pray, Lord, that he would be remembered again as the only Savior and that you would bring that truth back into your church. Oh, Father, have mercy upon us. And then we also see that sometimes there's a little bit of a close, a little closeness, more close to the truth in the church. The church is a little closer. And they teach that in him we have forgiveness of sins, that we have the uh, forgiveness through his blood on the cross. And even that is rightly taught. But this whole idea of Christ being our king and being brought to him so that we can live for you and so that we can serve you is left out of the whole equation. It's just sort of like you come and you get forgiven and then you're okay and you can go to heaven and whatever. But there's no talk about being brought to to you as our Father, so that we can live to you as your, as your children. And that we have this King that is able to help us to do your will, to lead us into doing your will and walking with you. Father, if that is not our desire, we have not really even come to Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that you would, you would work in all of us, that we would be clear what it is, to be in Christ, and that we would be in Him for salvation. And Father, spread this salvation. It is a rare thing. Jesus said that the way was narrow and difficult and that few find it. And we pray, Lord, that we would be able to promote it to, first of all, to our own children, and then to our neighbors and to the people around us. Give us a zeal for Your kingdom, Lord, a zeal that we we so often don't have because our love is cold. It's too cold. Father, work in us, we pray. Forgive us, Lord, and restore true spiritual health to us. Father, we desire to, to be conformed to Christ and to have him in all of his fullness as our Savior. Truly, Lord, we hear of churches that call themselves full gospel. This is the full gospel. Christ not only is our prophet, not only our priest, but also our King, all three of these. Lord, we are before you. Our eyes are on you as our Savior. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.